Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the conquering king. You did overcome the powers of sin and death and hell. You did it for our sake and the glory of the Father's sake. And by your grace, you have included us in that victory. So we honor you this morning. As we sang earlier, may your name be adored and magnified forever. It's the great Lord that you are. Lord, we thank you that you not only died, but you were raised up and you are now at the right hand of God and you intercede for us. You're alive now. You're praying for us even now. And Lord, thank you that because you are alive, you can keep your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, you'll be there in their midst. And so we pray that you would make your presence known this morning that we will be very aware that you are with us and here with us and that you live and reign forever. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you as the Lord and Savior that you are, that even today they would come to know the crucified and risen Savior. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. The greater the victory, the greater the celebration. A lot of people in Connecticut are celebrating a national basketball championship this week. A couple months ago, there was a big parade in Kansas City when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Millions of people rejoiced when World War II was over and the Axis powers were finally defeated. But this morning, we are celebrating the greatest victory of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his victory over sin and death. Our text for today explains the reality of Christ's victory and our response to the victory we have because of him. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection, starting with Christ's resurrection on the first Easter. And then the promise of our resurrection when he returns. This morning we'll be focusing on the conclusion of this remarkable chapter and what it says about the significance of the victory that Christ has won for us. So let's pick it up in verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start with Christ's victory over the power of death. In verse 26, Paul said, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The book of Job calls death the king 
of terrors. Death has been a fearful and powerful enemy for all of human history. It is an awful enemy that causes deep sorrow, as many of us in this room know personally, and which seems impossible to stop with all the medical advances we've come up with. No one has yet discovered a cure for death. So death reigned supreme in this world until the first Easter. Jesus' resurrection decisively defeated the power of death. In Acts 2, which was preached just seven weeks after the first Easter, Peter said, this man was delivered over to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So the power of death could not hold, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus in the tomb that morning. And Christ's resurrection is the first installment of more resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ is, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So just like the first vegetables you pick from your garden that are a preview of many more to come, Christ's resurrection is a preview and guarantee of our resurrection. Then look at verse 50 through 53. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable, imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on Immortality. So when Christ returns, our bodies will be transformed so they are no longer perishable. Perishable means subject to wearing down and wearing out and wasting away. And they won't be subject to mortality, which means we will never die or even be able to die. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 says, that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And all this will happen when Christ comes back. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then when that event happens, Jesus comes back, we're raised, we're transformed, then will come to pass the saying that was written in Isaiah chapter 25, death is swallowed up in victory. So Christ's victory on the first Easter is the first installment of that victory. The final victory is when he returns and we share in that resurrection. So we all know what it means to swallow something, you take something in your mouth and consume it completely. So I'm going to swallow this. Okay. Gone, right? Figuratively, it means to completely absorb or envelop. So if you throw a rock in the ocean, it will never be seen again. Or think about what happened to Korah and the others in their 
rebellion. This is the language of Numbers 16. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. And all that belonged to them went alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished. So in all three examples, there's no doubt about the outcome. The water, the rock, the rebels could do absolutely nothing to stop from being completely swallowed up and consumed. And God uses that vivid word picture to say, that is what's going to happen to death. It will be gone forever, never to be seen or feared again. So this is a quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Death is a great devourer. With his iron tongue, he calls for thousands at a meal. He has already swallowed up all the preceding generations of men. All who are now living are marked as his inevitable prey. He is still unsatisfied and will go on devouring until the Lord shall come. Then this destroyer shall be destroyed. He shall swallow no more, but be swallowed up in victory. Death will be utterly destroyed. Christ came to make an end of sin, to destroy death, to repair every disorder and remove every misery. And he will so fully, so gloriously accomplish his great undertaking that everything contrary to holiness and happiness shall be swallowed up and buried beyond the possibility of return as a stone that is sunk in the depths of the sea. So that's the final outcome of death. And so Paul taunts death with the words of verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? In other words, death, you used to be so powerful. You used to be so intimidating. You used to make everybody so afraid. Remember, Hebrews talks about people who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. But not anymore. Those days are over. Christ defeated you. Your power is broken. And a day is coming when God promises in Revelation 21, there shall no longer be any death. So death no longer has the final word. Jesus does. And this is what our risen Jesus said in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So that's what we're celebrating. Jesus lives. He says, because I live, you shall live also. I defeated death. You'll share in my victory. Death is overcome. So about 400 years ago, John Donne, or Dunn, wrote this poem. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Well, Christ not only defeated the power of death, he disarmed the sting of death. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, the second half of 55 says, Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he tells us what sting he's talking about. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. So like a scorpion, death has a terrible sting. 
the thing that makes death so threatening and so terrifying is sin. There's an inseparable connection between death and sin in the Bible. So Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So Adam sins. God had said the day you eat of it, you'll die. And now that's been spread to all of us because of sin. Or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So death is not just a natural process that just happens, part of the cycle of life. It is a judgment of God on human sin. And if the sin issue is not dealt with before our physical death, we will experience, experience eternal death, which is separation from God forever in hell. Paul adds that the power of sin is the law. The law shows us that we have all failed to keep God's righteous requirements and pronounces that we are now all under God's curse. And so in Galatians 3, Paul writes in verse 10, As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So that's, that's where all, we're all at. We all fall short of keeping God's righteous requirements. But look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So God treated Jesus as a lawbreaker. He bore the curse that we deserve to experience because of our sin on himself, and now God can righteously treat us as law keepers if we trust in Christ. Jesus took the sting of death in himself so that the sting of death which would hurt us and destroy our souls is gone forever. The resurrection assures us that the sting of death is gone forever. And that's what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, Good Friday, was raised because of our justification, Easter morning. The work necessary to justify, get right in God's sight, was accomplished in full, and it was shown to be in full by Christ's resurrection. So how should we respond to the reality of Christ's victory over both sin and death? And the first response would be, to trust in Christ as the risen Lord and mighty Savior. Paul started off chapter 15 by rehearsing the gospel that he preaches, the good news of God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. He said in verse 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So our sins that keep getting mentioned in the Bible and in the gospel are, are going to separate us from God. Isaiah 59 two says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And as we said, if we die with unforgiven sin, then we will be separated from God forever. And we can't do anything to fix that. We can't do anything to make up for our sins 2 Timothy 2.9 says, God saved us 
1-9, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. So our only hope of forgiveness, our only hope of eternal life, our only hope of being with God forever in heaven is trusting in Christ. Believing his death is the only way we can be forgiven by God. And believing in his resurrection, showing that God accepted his death as the full payment of our sins and that he is able to completely and forever save those who come to God through him. Paul says it this way in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued from sin and death and brought to God forever. Well, many of us are trusting in the crucified and risen Savior. So how are we to respond to the reality of Christ's triumph over sin and death and the truth that we share in that victory? Paul shares two appropriate responses. First of all, verse 57. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God did something miraculous. God graciously intervened on our behalf. We were absolutely helpless to overcome sin. We could do absolutely nothing to fight against death. But God gave us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, Such conquests and triumphs will certainly tune the tongues of the saints to thankfulness and praise. Praise for the victory. It is great and glorious in itself. And for the means whereby it was obtained, it is given of God through Jesus Christ. A victory obtained not by our power, but the power of God. Not given because we are worthy, but because Christ is worthy and has obtained this conquest for us. How many springs of joy to the saints and thanksgiving to God are opened by the death and resurrection of our Redeemer. So we're already trying to fulfill that response here. We're joyfully singing praises to our risen Savior on Easter morning. So we're already trying to do 57, but that's not where Paul ends. That would have been a great end of the chapter, wouldn't it? Just this note of, thanks be to God. We have the victory in Christ. Chapter 16, but he has one more verse. So Paul has 57 verses declaring and defending the resurrection of Christ and explaining how we will share in his victory over sin and death. And then he has a specific verse of application. It starts with the word therefore, which tells us he is about to connect all he's been saying before with what he's about to say. He's telling us, in light of the truth, I've been sharing about the resurrection here is how believing that truth is intended to make a difference in your life. So let me 
You just see the word therefore at the beginning. This is John Piper's lead up to that. Paul intends and God intends that there be a practical effect of what he has said. He intends for the effect to be verse 58. And the word therefore shows that he intends for verse 58 to happen because we know and remember verses 51 to 57. I would add know and believe <laughs> 51 through 57. Christ has come. He has died for you. He took all your sins on himself. He satisfied the demands of the law for you. The sting of death is removed. There is no condemnation, no hell, no fear. Though your body be laid in the grave, Christ will come and this mortal body will put on immortality and this decomposing, decaying body will become imperishable. Death is swallowed up in a great blood-bought Christ wrought victory. To die is now gain. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, verse 58. So bring all the weight of 57 verses about the resurrection with you and then get to 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So be steadfast. If you look it up in the dictionary, steadfast means firmly fixed in place, not subject to change, firm in belief, determination, or adherence. Steadfast implies a steady and unwavering course in love, allegiance, or conviction. So Paul started the chapter... 15, 1 and 2 with this. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul's calling us, if you really believe in the resurrection, be solid and unshakable in your faith. It's pretty straightforward. And closely related to that is be immovable, which amazingly enough means incapable of being moved, not moving, unyielding. And even some in the church in Corinth were not convinced about the resurrection. That just blows my mind. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, there's some people in this room this morning. Not, not there. Not convinced. He's writing, he's writing this to a church. Not, not to the community. He's not addressing the unbelievers in Athens and trying to preach the resurrection. He's trying to preach the resurrection in a church and he says, some of you don't even believe this. And so by saying immovable, he's saying, don't be fickle. Don't be easily swayed from your faith in Christ, even though there's people in your church that aren't there. Don't go along with that. Similar to Colossians 1, 23, Paul talks about Verse 22, 
Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's being immovable. Hang on to this belief in the death and resurrection of Christ. And then the last phrase is, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul is convinced and he wants us to be convinced that if we really believe that Jesus is risen, in addition to showing up on Sunday morning and singing praises, it will show up in our lives, not only in how we face death in the future, but how we invest our time now. He calls all believers to be engaged in the Lord's work. How often? Always. All the time. Don't settle for just rarely or occasionally or once in a blue moon do some serving in the Lord. But keep at it consistently. Don't give up. Don't grow weary and well-doing. Keep going. Well, how much? Abounding. Abounding means present in great quantity or overflowing. So don't be content with just small amounts, but strive for lots of it. By God's enabling grace, let there be an abundance of things done in the Lord's work. Now, why would we devote ourselves to the work of the Lord like that? That sounds kind of overkill. Always abounding. We've got a life. We've got a job. We've got kids. We've got a busy schedule. Right? All of us are, could say that. Paul says, the reason I'm calling you to do that is because you know something. Namely, you know that our labor, our toil in the Lord is not in vain. Vain means having no real worth or value. In other words, we're not wasting our time on things that ultimately don't matter. Because there's an eternity after this little blip of a life is over. Because Jesus is risen, we'll be in the eternity with him forever. And so what you do now in this life will be well worth it. will be well rewarded. You're not wasting your time. You're not wasting your effort. You're not wasting your money in serving the Lord. It will be worth it. And so when we stand before the Lord, our risen, ever-living Lord, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we just bow in amazement, in joy, um, that you are risen. You really did what you said you would did would do. You promised you would overcome sin and death, and you did. You promised that all who believe in you will live forever, and we will. 
And you've told us in light of those victories, we're called to praise you and serve you. And I pray that we would be abounding in both. I pray again for anyone listening this morning. Lord, our only hope is in Jesus. There's no other way to be right with you now and forever than Jesus, death and resurrection. And so I pray you would grant the gift of faith to those who aren't there yet. Lord, would you bring them to know Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.